but there was a there was a real man named Gideon. And over the next few moments, we're we're going to spend some time looking at some very important aspects of Gideon's life that hopefully will have meaning for us. Now, to put our text into context, let's go back a moment. You will remember that there was a man named Moses who went down into Egypt and brought the Israelite people out of Egypt, out of their bondage. And for 40 years, these Israelite peoples wandered in the wilderness. And then there was a man named Joshua that followed Moses who had the responsibility given by God to take his people into the land that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. And for a number of years, Joshua led the people as they went into the land and occupied it and lived there. We're told in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, that the people of God remained faithful to a service of God, to the worship of God, all the days of Joshua and all the days of those elders who served along with Joshua during his day. But after the death of Joshua and after the death of the elders that served with him, Israel forgot God and they turned to the worship of idols. Because of their idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness, God delivered them over to be plundered, to be oppressed by their various enemies. At different times, different enemies of Israel would attack them and and for a time oppress them. But in spite of their unfaithfulness and through the divine providence of God, when the people would recognize their mistake and they would cry out to God for forgiveness, for deliverance, for redemption, God raised up judges who would deliver them from their oppressors. Gideon was one of those judges. Before Gideon, there had been four judges, and each would redeem the people for a time, only to see them return to idolatrous practices after the death of that judge. Such was the situation that we find in Judges chapter 6. The last judge, Deborah, had died. And Israel had turned back to the worship of idols. They had turned back to the worship of Baal. This time it was the Midianites that God allowed to oppress Israel. They oppressed them for some seven years. They brought great suffering to Israel during this seven-year period. They took all of the merchandise, all of the profits that they would, would uh, enjoy. They destroyed their crops and allowed them very little sustenance on which to live. But we'll remember that God had made a promise to his people. He had made a promise to the descendants of Abraham. In the closing portions of the, of the final sets of, the final set of, of, of pronouncements, the final set of, of instructions that Moses gave his people, Recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we find God making that promise yet again. When he said, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. 
He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spread out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Here's the key passage. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Now these several years later, after that promise had been made by God through Moses, the descendants of Jacob were living a very different life. They were experiencing something that was very different than the promises that God had made. Instead of riding on the high places, as had been promised, they were hiding in dens and caves. Instead of eating the produce of their fields, they were not allowed to even enjoy the harvest of their grain. They had fallen a long way from the high places God had intended for them. But they were in this position because of their own actions. God had not failed them. They had failed God. They had failed to honor God. They had failed to obey God. And they had placed other gods before him. God had told them in verse 12, the Lord alone guides him. No foreign gods was with him. He's told us that we are to have no gods before him. But now we find these people in the depths of despair. They're in the depths of despair because these Midianite peoples have oppressed them so greatly. But we find in verse 7 of Judges chapter 6 that they cried out to the Lord. They recognized the mistakes that they had made and they cried out for repentance. They cried out for redemption. And in verse 8, we see that the Lord heard their, their pleas. In verse 8, we see that God heard their cries to heaven. And in, we, we see that God answered their prayers because he sent them a prophet. When the people, uh, when the people cried out to God, this prophet, whoever he was, came to the people and he told them about their sin. He reminded them of all of the things God had done for his people. He reminded them that I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. He reminded them that I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But he also reminded them not only the promises that God had made them, he reminded them of their own sin because he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. After this prophet's announcement, God's angel some scholars say this is the incarnation of Christ himself 
whoever this angel was, we don't actually know because his name is not given. But whoever it was came from God. It came from the power from the throne room of God with all the, pool, the power and the authority of God himself. Speaking a word from God. And he visited Gideon to prepare him for the job that God had called him to do. We actually see the call of Gideon. I, I would say it's almost, uh, we see it almost as mockery. Because what we see in Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, when we're introduced to Gideon, we, we find him hiding in a wine press. He's hiding there to thrash out a meager amount of grain so that he might be able to feed his family. So here is Gideon. He's hiding for fear. He's fear he has fear of the Midianites. And he's, as he's hiding in fear, he hears the Lord speaking to him through this angel. This one who is cowering in the corner in fear hears the angel say, O mighty man of valor. He certainly wasn't exhibiting much valor at that time. But this is how God called him. It points out, I think, to us a vast difference between how Gideon saw himself and how God saw him. Gideon saw himself as he was. God saw him as what he would be. What God would make of him. But Gideon looked at his own human limitations. and We see his fear as he questions God. We see those words that he uses. If. Why. Where have you been, God? How am I supposed to do this? If. If. If Gideon didn't understand how God would use a poor farmer like himself to deliver his nation. But God met that unbelief with promises. He says in verse 12, the Lord is with you. In verse 14, he said, you shall save Israel. Have I not sent you? Surely I will be with you. But Gideon was not convinced. We find Gideon challenging the Lord. And as we see him challenging the Lord, we see his fears. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. See, what Gideon's perception was is of himself. What he says is that my tribe of Manasseh is the least of the tribes of Israel. My father's clan is the least of the least tribe of Manasseh. And I am the least in the least of the clans of the least of the tribes of Israel. Why are you looking at me, God? I'm the least of the least. I'm the last man you need to be looking at, he says. 
But Gideon was given a promise. And even though his language is not the language of faith, he was still given a promise. I don't know about you, but when I read the story of Gideon, I can't help but look at myself. I think sometimes, as I see this, how can a man come face to face with the angel of God and reject what the angel is telling him? That seems, on the surface, incomprehensible. But really, I find that I do that on a regular basis. God has called us to live out our faith. He's called us to exhibit valor in the face of our enemy, the old devil himself. But I find myself doing as Gideon did all too often. Too often I've looked at myself as I am with all of my weaknesses and I see all the reasons that I can't do some service for the Lord. And I all too often fail to see that it is God that works through me. It's God that works through you. It's God that works through his people. If we would only trust him. Like Gideon, we need to understand that it's not about us. It's about him. It's about his power. Now we know from Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 that faith comes by hearing God's word. But we also know that God's word wasn't enough for Gideon. He required a sign. Actually, he required two signs. But we'll get to that in a moment. It seemed that one wasn't good enough for him. It's one thing for us to meet God in the secret, secrecy of a wine press. But it's quite another for us to stand up in public and proclaim our faith. The very night that God tested, uh, that God called him, he tested his faith. He asked him to go tear down the, 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 the altar that had been erected for the worship of Baal, the altar that his own father had erected. And in its place to erect an altar to the worship of Almighty God. In addition, he told him to kill the bull that his father had reserved. Most likely, that bull had been reserved to sacrifice on that altar to Baal. But God said that bull would have another purpose. It would be a sacrifice to God. Gideon obeyed the Lord, but even in his obedience, he shows his doubts because he was a doubtful judge. He still did not have the faith that God would win the victory for him. Gideon was doubtful that he would be the deliverer. So he asked for a sign. If you're familiar with the story of Gideon, you recognize that Gideon asked for the sign. He said, I, I'm going to put out, Lord, I'm going to put out a, 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 a piece of fleece. And if I'm, if I'm really the man that you have called to do this, uh, I want the fleece to be wet in the morning and all of the ground around the fleece to be dry. Well, the next morning, the Lord had answered that. He had given him that sign because he was able to wring out a bowl of water 
from the fleece and all the ground around was dry. He said in that first sign, he says, if God would do that, he says, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. But he didn't believe it. He didn't know it. Because then he asked for another sign. He said, God, that first one was pretty good. But let's do another one. Uh, this time I'm going to put the fleece out and I want you to wet all the ground around it and leave the fleece dry. And in his patience, God answered that one too. It's too bad though when we as people of God don't trust his clear word. Just like Gideon, sometimes we, we seek a sign. And sometimes we, we want to see before we will believe. We forget sometimes what the Hebrew writer tells us about faith as being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our faith is on something we don't see, but we believe it with all our heart. I think it's human nature for us to want to know where we're going to wind up when we start a journey. But sometimes in this walk of faith, we just have to start. Not knowing where the journey would end, but knowing only that God is guiding our path. Gideon would, Gideon would eventually become the leader that God would use to deliver his people. But he had to come out of the wine press in order to do it. He had to lead God's army out in the open, not in secret. And we can't be secret saints and do great things for God's kingdom. We have to come out, of the, out in the open and, and take our stand and sometimes regardless of the cost. We can't be nighttime Christians as Gideon tried to be when he tore down the altar at night. We can be like the fearful Gideon living in fear of our enemy or we can live a life, a courageous life in God, the one that he has called us to live. The life that we live will, will depend on how we respond to God's call. God wants his people to do great things for his cause. But in order to do so, we have to step out on faith, sometimes not knowing where we're going. But Gideon would become the conqueror. He would become the deliverer. He would eventually overcome his fears. As God patiently guided Gideon, he would be able to rally a great army. He rallied an army of some 32,000 men. But God said, I don't need all of those. We find there that Gideon wasn't the only one that was fearful. He sent home some 22,000 of those soldiers because they were fearful. That left an army of 10,000 to go up against the multiple thousands of the armies of the Midianites. But that was too many. God sent most of those home through a test and he left an army of 300. 300 soldiers to go up against an army of many thousands. With all the assurances God has given him, Gideon was still doubtful of his victory. Even on the night of the battle, 
there was still fear in Gideon's heart. We find that God recognized that fear. He told him that he would, uh, he would give him a sign. He said, I recognize the fear in your heart, Gideon. I'm going I'm to tell you what's going to happen. You slide down into the army's camp, the enemy's camp, and you listen to the conversation that's going to take place. So Gideon goes down and he and his servant sneak in to the camp and they were there in secret and they were hearing two soldiers talking. One soldier says, I had a dream. I had a dream that there was a man, I had a dream that there was a, there was a cake a barley cake, and it tumbled in the camp of the Midians. It knocked over the tent, turned the tent upside down so that the tent lay flat. The other soldier, perceiving what the meaning of that dream was, said, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given unto his hand Midian and all of the camp. Upon hearing that, Gideon finally became the courageous victor. He knew the end result because God had let him hear it. He knew that God was going to use this ordinary farmer to win a great victory. And God will still use ordinary people just like us to accomplish his work. If he can use Gideon, he can use you. He can use us to do great work for him. But we have to get past our fears and our doubts and our uncertainties. And we have to know with certainty God is with us. He conquered his foes, but it's interesting how he did it. He had an army of 300, and they were given some mighty weapons. They were given a torch. They were given a trumpet, and they were given a, an earthen vessel or bowl. That was their weapons to go to war. I don't know too many uh, military strategists that would use those weapons as weapons of war, but that's what he had. God did this so that they would understand that it was not the power of arms. It was the power of Almighty God that won this victory. The Spirit of God was using Gideon. And Gideon finally learned the lesson that God would teach us again in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6 when he said, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The victory belongs to the Lord. It won't be by our abilities when we confront and defeat our enemy, the devil. It will be by the one weapon we have at our disposal. What Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 calls the everlasting gospel. That's our weapon. That's the weapon that we use as we stand before our enemy today. The almighty gospel. It's the same weapon that the Lord used when he confronted the devil himself. And he says, it is written. It is written. We must not be found hiding in a wine press. 
We must hold that gospel up as the light that can save mankind. And we must let our light shine by the way we live in the world around about us. We're told in Matthew 5 and verse 16 that we are to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. And we must be willing to sound out the trumpet as a clarion call. You remember Paul talking about the Thessalonians. He says of them, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. When the word of the Christians in Thessalonica were spoken in other places, their faith is what spoke for them. Does my faith speak for me? Does your faith speak for you? Does our faith speak for us as a people? We wonder how this victory could come with so few men and such inadequate weapons. But victory was not going to be won by these men. And victory was not going to be won by these weapons. Victory was going to be won by God through their faithful obedience to do these strange things. There's things that God has told us to do. And some of those to human eyes seem awfully strange. But like Gideon, we are to be obedient to what God has told us to do. So as we think about Gideon and his hesitancy, let's think about ourselves. Even in his doubts and fears, Gideon was placed at the head of the list of judges in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. The great honor roll of faith, Gideon is listed there. Not because of his doubts and because of his fears, but because of his obedience to God. We may have some doubts and fears and we may have some reluctance. But God is still the same God. When we're faced with our enemies, where will we stand? Will we be found fearful and doubtful? Will we be found hiding in our wine press? Or will we face our adversary with courage, knowing that God is with us? Remembering that it's not about us, it's all about Him. I've seen this lived out in so many lives over so many years. I've seen it lived out just in the last few months. I hope I don't embarrass to fine young men who are in our audience today but I had two young men that went with us to the Philippines when John Bowers first spoke to me about going to the Philippines he was very hesitant he said I'm not a teacher I'm not a preacher I don't know if I can do any good I don't know what my role would be but over the course of several months as we worked and planned, John was a part of our planning. He went with us, he did some wonderful work. 
maintenance work, landscape work. But before our week of teaching in VBS was over, by, by the middle of the week, John was asking the ladies, can I go with you to help with VBS? I want to help teach the children. And there he was, the latter part of the week, right alongside, and he learned that, yes, he could teach. He could contribute. He could serve God in this way because it wasn't about him. It was about what God was doing through him. John came back from that trip a changed person, a stronger person, a more courageous person. He and Karen are now teaching a class in the children's ministry together, something he had never done before. See, I've seen God work in people's lives. Dakota was very apprehensive about going. One of the comments that Dakota made was, I've only been a Christian for a year. See, we went in April of this year, but it was just the April of the year before that Dakota had come to know about Jesus and, and come to be a part of God's family. He'd only been a Christian for a year. He was hesitant. I've never taught before, he said. But we assigned him to help with Merv and Steve to teach the high school age boys over there. And before that week was over, we experienced three of those young men being baptized, added to the kingdom of God. I don't know about the other two, but I know one of them told me that it was in large measure because of Dakota and because of the way that Dakota shared his life. What he lacked in biblical knowledge, he made up by showing what God had done in his life and in his heart because it wasn't about him. It was about God. There are so many times and so many ways and so many examples that we could look at of how God has used people who didn't think that they could do what they were asked to do, but through the power of God they did. Could it be that we're more concerned with ourselves than we are with what God can do with us? Do we need to understand once again that it, it's just not about us? It's not about me. It's about God. Every time the people of God, every time the Israelites went back into idolatry and turned their back on God, God caused them great hardship. But every time they turned back to God and cried out to God, he sent them a redeemer. We call them the judges. You know, we are just like those people. We've been oppressed by sin and by Satan. And we call out individually and collectively, we call out at times for God to redeem us and to forgive us and save us. And we're reminded that God has done that. He sent us our Redeemer. Jesus is our judge. He is our Redeemer. He is the one sent. And he sent for once 
and for all time. So if you're here today, and if you're living with the weight of the sins that so easily beset you, that weigh you down, you can be freed from those sins through an obedient faith in Jesus. He stands at the door, he, he, he knocks, he, he asks that you give yourself to him completely and totally. That you obey him explicitly. But if you have been part of God's kingdom and maybe we sometimes, just like God's people of old, turn back to the old ways and go back to the ways of sin, God is still calling us. He still has the Redeemer that we can call upon. Jesus, the Redeemer of us all. If you're subject to God's invitation, there's really no better time than right now to get rid of those things that weigh you down. If you're not part of God's kingdom, we would love to help you with that decision even today. If you have questions about God's word and what he expects of you, we'd love to study with you and to share with you the good news of the gospel of Christ. If you need to respond to God's message, now is the time to do that as we stand and sing this song for your encouragement.